Thank you, Jason, and such a delight to be here. Thank you all for joining us this morning. Uh, just to kind of help maybe lay out the format a little bit, we're actually going to try and we've got a fair bit of content. We didn't have time to write a short report, so we wrote a long one. And uh, as a result of that, we're going to go through the content, I think, in a relatively short period of time, sort of in the 20 to 25 minute range. And then what we'd like to do is actually just open it up for Q&A for the balance of the time and just have a free-flowing, free-ranging discussion about, uh, about the topics raised. Um, and as, as Jason mentioned, uh, one of the board members of our small family foundation called the Pine Tops Foundation, and when we funded our foundation over the last couple of years, we kept asking the question, how is it that we should steward our resources? And there's so many wonderful organizations and, and ministries and causes to give to. It's actually not hard to give away money. The question is, of course, how does one give it away well? And so uh, as a former consultant, I did what any good former consultant would do, which is I hired more consultants and made PowerPoint. And uh, so that's what we did. So that's a, I've known David for 20 years. And so David, uh, through the Veritas Labs Initiative, brought a team in and worked, us, worked with us on this report. So thank you to David and his team for this. So we, it was a year-long effort. And we ended up publishing this report that we call The Great Opportunity. And we asked two questions over the course of the report of over 100 ministry leaders, theologians, church historians, philanthropists, and others. And we asked this question. We asked, how can the US church be more fruitful over the next 30 years? And secondly, how can we as funders play a part in that? And what we found surprised us. What we found was the largest gospel opportunity in the history of American uh, society. And if we move quickly, we can help tens of millions of young people who would otherwise walk away from a life with Christ know Jesus. It is unquestionably the single largest gospel moment ever in the United States. And of course, one asks the question, when you make a large and bold claim, that requires proof. And so what we did is we looked at a, a slew of data. We looked at demographics and fertility and mortality and immigration data, a ton of statistical data. And what we did is we combined it with a thing called affiliation rates. And it's a very, it's a very, sounds much more complicated than it is, it's very basic. It says, what is the religion in which you were raised in your family compared to the religion that you now identify as an adult? It's very simple, you're raised in a Christian home and now you're a Christian, so you have an affiliation where you're likely to stay within the Christian faith. Or maybe you uh, choose a different religion. And so what we did is there's been lots of longitudinal data and studies that have been done on that. And the upshot is this, right now about 73% of Americans would self-identify as Christian. Now we're not gonna get into are they Christian or not and the depth of their faith, there are important discussions to be had around that, but we're gonna leave that be for the moment. We're just gonna simply, if they've self-identified, we'll take it as such. And of that 73%, if you lay out and draw a trend line using all the data that I just described, that number in a very conservative estimate that we call our base case declines to about 59% over the next 30 years. And that works out to about 35 million young people. That's due primarily to the largest generation in American history or the millennials, except for Gen Z, which is the generation behind them. So you're looking at the two largest generations, bigger than the baby boomers. And if they declines by about 15%, that represents about 35 million young people who were raised in Christian families who attend our churches, our youth groups, who go to our Christmas and Easter services, who are in our vacation Bible schools, who are in all of those things, and choose to walk away from a life with Jesus. It's a profound number. Now, we said, well, that's interesting, but you know, it's fairly conservative. What's a, what's a more, more aggressive scenario? And we call that the worst case, but by no means the worst. That number declines by about another 5% and looks and ends up being about 42 million. And then we said, well, let's, let's 
paint a more optimistic scenario. And so if we're able to get retention back to about what it was in Gen X for the 1990s, sort of retention and evangelism rates, it represents about 19 million people. And so you sort of do the delta, the spread between those two numbers, it's between 16 and 22 million young people. If we can get, get it back to Gen X, it's between 16 and 22 million young people who would otherwise walk away from a life with Christ would now be with Jesus. That's what we mean by the great opportunity. It is the single largest opportunity we've ever seen in American history. Now, this is not a purely theoretical exercise. This is my beautiful wife, Anne, and our four children, Josiah, Isaiah, Evelyn, and Evangeline. And now, as Christian parents, we take the stewardship of our children very seriously. We want to introduce them to Christ and make sure that, you know, to the extent we can introduce them to the person of Jesus, and they'll make their own faith decisions. But statistically, if trends continue as they are, two of them would walk away from a life with Christ. And as a parent, that breaks my heart. That motivates me and our foundation and our, the ministries in which we work uh, every day to say, what kind of church are we leaving for them? What kind of faith are we, uh, we giving for them? How can we pastor and steward and shepherd them well so that they might live a life with Christ? And of course, it's not just our children. It's 42 million sons and daughters, children and grandchildren, friends and family who would choose to walk away from a life with Christ over the next 30 years. This is our great opportunity. Now, we do frame it as an opportunity because we are deeply hopeful. We're deeply hopeful because Christ is at work, but we have to stress this is an incredibly urgent moment. Now, statistically, though perhaps not ultimately, 96% of all people uh, will make their faith decision by the time they're 35. So that you make your faith decision, that calcifies by the time you're about 35. So if you think about that, most of the time we think of millennials as sort of kind of like 20-somethings on Snapchat popping collars and stuff, and that's actually just not the case. The oldest millennial is 38 and probably drives a minivan, right? Like it's not, it's not. So what happens is the, the, the age of millennials are starting to age out of the switching window. And the youngest millennial is now 19, and Gen Z, that larger generation, even the millennials, is now 18, and the last Gen Z will be born in two years. So, dear friends, we are at peak opportunity, peak switching. This is not something that we can sort of solve over the next 20 years. It is something that we have to solve in the next two to three. We have to start making the moves and making the investments and doing the work now. We cannot wait, we cannot delay. So. The good news is we are deeply hopeful, and we're deeply hopeful because, as I said, Christ is at work. And so we looked at church history and a bunch of other resources and talked to theologians and talked to pastors and ministry leaders and all that stuff. And what we did is we found there were five common areas and patterns that we saw that consistently over time when there were moves of God, when there was great growth in the church, consistently we saw happen in the church. And the great news in all of this is that they're well-known, well-understood, and things that the church, whether it's the American church or the church historical, has been doing for the last 2,000 years. And they're well known. So we actually were deeply encouraged. Um, and so I'm going to lay out five specific areas, but I want to stress that it all begins with prayer. And I like how John Tyson once described this, that this is the prayer list. This is the thing we can pray for. And so if there's one thing we'd ask for you to take away is to pray for this moment and pray for uh, the things that we're going to talk about today. So right now, uh, we're going to talk, gonna go through a few slides, but the five areas are that we believe we need to triple the rate of new churches, triple church planting in the United States. Secondly, to transform youth formation and discipleship. 
thirdly, to come through and, and really think about how we evangelize digitally, how do we engage in the new media of our time. Fourthly, we need to be famous for our care for the poor, and I'll, we'll unpack that a little bit. And lastly, we need to build leadership for the long term, particularly at our universities. So let's talk about the first one, triple church planning. You hear lots of stuff about church planning and church revitalization. This is one of the tremendous success stories, frankly, across the country of work sort of uh, taking a, a church and, and having it really reach its community that's long and historic. But this is the, uh, let me kind of give a little statistics. And I know you, nothing says uh, church on a Sunday morning like a bunch of statistics. But uh, this, this is the per capita rates of church planting in the United States over the last 200 years. So how many new churches were started on a per capita basis in the United States? And what you can see is that, and really this is sort of the decline of denominationalism. We're out around the 1900s, church, uh, new church starts began to decline, except for a bump in the 1950s and 60s when the baby boom churches uh, were planted in the suburbs. And church planting is now basically at an all-time historic low on a per capita basis. We start right now in the U.S. about 4,000 churches in the U.S., which sounds fantastic, but we close 3,700 every year in the United States. So for a net of 300, and if any of you are in real estate or work in retail, you know that if you basically you're not making capital investments in physical presence, it's going to be tough over time. And that's, frankly, the state of the American church. And so we did a bunch of analysis, and I know you can't read any of it, but the upshot is that it's about 250,000 churches with an expected increase in the rate of church closures over the next 30 years. We need to plan about 8,000 a year net over the next 30 years every year. And the reason why we get to sort of doubling and tripling church planning rates is we're not even close to that today. So there's going to be have to a curve to grow to reach that number over time. And so... The fantastic news about this is, is that that's actually been our historic witness. If you remember that graph, back in the 1800s, the Methodists and Baptists and uh, African-American churches after the Civil War were planting thousands and thousands of churches every year with far less resources and, and, and um, strategic insight that we have today. And so there's a lot we can learn from that. And so a few, a few observations that we would make is that we actually need to work on recruiting more church planters. We need to build the talent pipelines. We need to scale low-cost church planting. It's just too expensive, as, as folks know. Sort of capital projects for in, uh, real estate in Manhattan is not a, not a small lift. And so uh, you know, we have to find ways and innovative ways to lower the cost of church planting using technology and shared resources and other things. And there's a lot we can do around apprenticing the next generation, and then some funding models that we think. The good news on the funding model is that actually, even assuming a high cost of church planning, we can actually get uh, at only $3,000 a year for every church in America. If every church in America contributed $3,000 a year, we'd have more than sufficient funding to do all of this, um, even in a high cost model. So there's actually tremendous wealth and resources there if we were to make that investment. All right, secondly, youth discipleship. I promise we're going to go through these fast. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking with experts around youth discipleship, and here's the tremendously good news in all of it. Good news is that the vast majority unaffiliated, despite what we may read in the news, are not walking away angry and embittered and shaking their fists at God or the church. The vast, vast majority, about 72%, are simply indifferent. They're just like, eh, whatever, good for you. I've got other things to do with my life. 
It's the vast, vast majority of it. Now, you know, it's not as if they sort of sat there and read the Nicene Creed and looked at sort of Greek text and said, you know, when, when they were talking about, you know, this, this text, I just don't think your exegesis is right, and so therefore I'm out. Like, that is not the state of millennials and, and Gen Z. What the state is, is frankly, it just becomes irrelevant. And if you look, about 42% said they're disinterested, about 30% cited a life change. Only 20% cited intellectual issues as their reason for leaving their faith, and 18% were dissatisfied with the life of the church. Now, look, 38% is a far too high number. Don't get me wrong, but I will take, um, I will take the 72%. Now, I know those numbers don't split to 100 because people can cite multiple data, so thank you, all those who are doing the math in your head. Uh, but that's, that's the, that is the good news here. And, uh, you know, our, our observation is that there is so much that we can do to introduce them to the person of Jesus Christ. We believe that if you live a life with Jesus and they truly meet the person of Christ, that these questions of disinterested and life change will slightly, will, will certainly uh, decrease. They've not seen the attractive love of Christ in their life. And so well, there's a lot we can do around that. Um, interestingly, the organization or, or religious sect that has the best retention rates are actually the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. And what they have done, they have lived in a culture that has not historically reinforced people, uh, you know, young people continuing with a life in the Mormon church. Historically, they've been sort of an outgroup in society. And so there's a lot to learn that honestly looks like the historic practice of the church. So guess what they get, you know, things we can learn. Number one, they take the whole family in church and invest in the life of the young people. So they get up at 6 a.m. when your teenager gets, they go to the equivalent of a confirmation class. They get the parents and other uh, adults in the church get up at 6 a.m. and teach this confirmation class and all the young people see these adults taking their faith and living a very vibrant life. So we need to help whole churches foster youth formation. The parents are deeply engaged in a set of resources we can do and we think there's more tools to help equip parents to engage in those issues. Thirdly, sending youth into mission. Uh, historically, the church has actually, you see revival happening in young people when they get called into mission in a life with Christ. And last, we think we need to raise this as a national advocacy movement within churches to help understand that this is one of the most critical questions that they can answer. And I would just, I would just simply say in all of this that there is so much that we know that works, so much of the historic witness that we I just want to stress, are so encouraged. I know when you sort of see these numbers and statistics, it can feel daunting. But uh, there's so many great examples of this uh, in the American church today. And then lastly, I'll hit on this, and then David will pick up the last couple. Um, we think the largest mission field in American history is but a click away. And so just imagine a thought experiment. Imagine if Billy Graham could walk into a coffee shop with two billion people who are asking questions about faith and life and could, could speak into that moment. If you imagine George Whitfield could go and could sit in a room where over a million people every month are asked, asking specific seeker-related, apologetic, faith-related questions like, why should I become a Christian or is God real? What would Whitfield or Luther or Graham or Paul or pick your favorite church hero do in that moment? And if you look, I mean, the absolute, just the sheer numbers that we see digitally, now you can, you know, a lot of talk in our time around sort of social, but the numbers are just staggering, whether you're on Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook. And so we think that that is our historic witness, whether it was Luther or Graham or Whitfield with the printing press, the newspaper, television, radio. 
And yet, if you think about our history, our witness in this moment, name me one sort of dominant brand that uh, young, if you Google search results, why should I become a Christian, uh, you'll, uh, you'll probably be disappointed in the quality of the search results. Um, again, I'd, I'd sort of hate to, hate to sort of draw the comparison, but an organization that's much, much smaller, the, the Mormon Church has, a, has invests millions of dollars every year on search and social advertising so that when someone asks these questions like, why should I be a Christian or is God real? It immediately shows up and then gives you an ability to click directly there, live chat with someone with questions about their faith, and then connect them into a local church immediately. I mean, I mean it's just like, it's just like sort of digital. I, I'm in, by the way, my background, I'm a tech guy. I'm, I live in Silicon Valley. So like, you, this is like tech basics 101, and yet we as the American church haven't made that investment in it. So good news is it's a very fixable problem. So... Uh, you know, a few things that we'll just sort of observe. Number one is we think we, uh, we need talent to be recruited into this space to help build strong digital brands that could engage. We think there's a lot we can do around helping uh, create sort of studios to, you know, YouTube uh, or other social platforms to be visible and prominent. I was talking with a very well-known under 40 uh, crusade evangelist and he was so happy they had gotten sort of 40 to 50,000 young people in a stadium and you know, sort of several thousand had committed their life to Christ and be connected to the local church. And I'm like, yeah, so how many you got 40,000? How many you think you could get in sort of one day with a good YouTube channel? The, the, some of the top YouTube celebrities are actually larger than the Southern Baptists, their followings in America. And so digital just has so much reach. And we think there's a lot we can do around helping build capacity for training in churches. So those are three of the areas. The next one we want to hit on is being famous for care for the poor. And David, why don't you touch on that? Can you hear me? Um, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. So um, the church, we were once famous for our care for the poor. Um, this is a, a section from the Emperor Julian writing in the third century AD. And he was scandalized, and the Roman Empire was scandalized by the witness of the church for sacrificially caring for the poor, not just within the church, but outside the church as well. And it was so scandalous to the Roman Empire that it forced them to change how they care for the poor. And they complained about that. But this sacrificial, literally laying down their lives, there's a lot of research out of, uh, Rodney Stark is one who's written a lot about this. I suspect many of you are probably aware of his work. But this is really what the fuel that grew the church in the first couple of centuries was we were famous for caring sacrificially, literally laying down our lives for the poor. What is the reality today? Well, sadly, the perception at least is not quite there. So uh, recently, and it's dropping, only about 55% of Americans today say that the church positively is contributing to social goods. Only about 55% of Americans believe that we contribute to the good of America. Josh talked about that unaffiliated rate, uh, unaffiliated people. Um, it gets even worse there. About 70 to 75% of the unaffiliated do not believe that we positively contribute to social causes. And so there's a couple reasons that this is problematic. First of all, uh, the gospel is about an upside-down kingdom where Jesus Christ role-modeled coming and laying down his life for people that could do nothing for him. And so caring for the poor is central to who we are as Christians. It's central to our model and our witness. But even more so for Gen Z and millennials. So for Gen Z and millennials, and at Veritas, for those of you who aren't familiar, we work on college campuses. We're a campus ministry. That's our day jobs, and we see this every day. So the previous generations maybe would talk about virtue in categories like courage, or fidelity or integrity. Current college students talk about virtue in terms of social justice and how are we caring for the least amongst us. 
And so if the church is not known for doing this well, it's doubly impactful in terms of the great opportunity of capturing the hearts and minds. Now, we do think that uh, there are a couple things that can happen here and the things we're hopeful about. So first of all, that number three, I would argue it's actually not quite as bad as the perception. So there's a lot of research that shows that we actually are doing a remarkably good job of caring for the poor. Uh, another study out of Baylor showed that houses of worship contribute about 1.2 trillion per year, trillion with a T, to the U.S. economy. And that's largely through things like soup kitchens and homeless shelters and job retraining programs. $1.2 trillion a year. And so one of the things we need to do is we need to get much better at telling the story of what God's already doing through his church. We want God to be famous for how the church is caring for the poor already. And so there are things we can do to tell that story much more effectively and better. But two, we need to be doing a lot more. Some of the best data we have shows that, you know, on average, the average churchgoer gives about 2% of their income to the church. So imagine if that $1.2 trillion was double that, four times that. What would be our ability to care for those around us if those numbers were 2 to 4x what they are currently? And then finally, we, want to, uh, we believe wholeheartedly we need to unleash a new generation of, of social entrepreneurs. Historically, the church in North America is the, we're the people that uh, birthed hospitals across the U.S. to care for communities. We're the people that birthed uh, the primary school movement, the fact that we just take for granted that everybody goes to school. That came through the church. And so we believe the church needs to unleash a new generation of social entrepreneurs with a vision for solving big societal issues, systemic issues, in a way that's, that's motivated by and leveraged by the church. And so we're hopeful there. The fifth thing that Josh alluded to a little bit, and this, you know, the last one gets this, and this is near and dear to our heart at Veritas, is how are we building the long-term leadership for the church? How are we building the long-term leadership for the church? One of the things that um, we think about with the great opportunity is what are the plausibility structures? So if we had sociologists in the room, they would use that term. And what that means is basically as we live and breathe in 2018, do we believe that the gospel is likely to be true and relevant? Sadly, I think a lot of what goes into that tipping of, of the disaffiliation rates increasing is that we see a little bit of a tipping point of the gospel isn't considered plausible or relevant in many places. So how do we rebuild this? So if we had, again, if we had sociologists in the room, they'd say institutions matter. And they'd say in particular the university matters. They'd say that top-tier institutions, top-tier universities play a disproportionate role in defining for us what the questions are that we need to ask and how we answer those questions. And we believe and we want to be a part of having the gospel be relevant, credible, and plausible as a source of beauty and truth to answer the questions of society. Is that happening today? Um, no. Let me ask this a different way. Uh, think about the college experience you've had or maybe that your children are having. Because of that college experience, because of what they're learning in the classroom, because of the conversations they're having with their professors, because of what they're getting from student affairs and uh, career services, are they, because of those experiences, more likely to believe that the gospel is credible, relevant, plausible in 2018? The answer, there's tons of data. We know this. The answer is no. So specifically, the data point we have here is that top-tier institutions today, top-tier universities like Columbia and NYU and Yale and elsewhere, only about 2% of faculty, tenure and tenure track faculty, identify as Christians the way you and I would. Only 2%. And so we think about the gospel being credible and relevant at the heart of the university, shaping those plausibility structures that we then all go live out for the rest of our days if only 2% of the, the people our students are interacting with in the classroom context reflect that, 
Um, question? Why is that such a great question? Well, give me 60 seconds. <laughs> no, great question. But yeah, that, that creates a, a, a significant barrier to the gospel being credible and relevant. So what do we do about that? So uh, we're deeply encouraged. I actually think, and happy to talk about this at length, I think a lot of this is a self-inflicted challenge. We have done this to ourselves with the church. Over the course of multiple generations, we have retrenched from these institutions. That means we've got an uphill battle, but it means that we can actually uh, do a lot to try to address this. So number one, we do need to build a deeper pipeline of our best and brightest going on and pursuing careers in the academy. We know some things that work. The Pew Emerging Scholars Program is something that existed for about a decade in the 90s and did a remarkable job on this. They were successful. Um, for a variety of institutional reasons at Pew, that program is discontinued, but it's, it wasn't discontinued because it wasn't effective. And so we believe that we need something like that to come back to rebuild that pipeline. Number two is we want to be a, uh, we, we think there's disproportionate impact where there's a density of those individuals at certain institutions. So UVA, the University of Virginia, is a great example of this uh, today. WashU is another example. The Claremont Consortium, Claremont McKenna, Pomona, et cetera, on the West Coast is another example where you see this clustering of intentional missional faculty where it is getting to five or even 10% of the faculty identify as Christian being very missional intentional with campus ministries, with local churches, with uh, other administrators. And you see this sort of disproportionate impact of the gospel being relevant and credible throughout the life of the university. And so we see these initial signs of hope. Things are moving and working, and we want to build off of that. Uh, two other things quickly. Uh, we believe that we should be developing cohorts more early on. So what would it look like to bring together 100 or 200 of the most intellectually ambitious uh, thoughtful Christian undergrads together every summer for two weeks to learn from people like Jason Harris or Josh Crossman or others about creating a vision for a lifetime, a lifetime of faithfulness in a singular direction, not just as individuals but as a cohort, really being about a part of this generational project. And then finally, and I'll wrap up with this, it needs to be diverse. We know this. We know that the U.S. is becoming, becoming a minority-majority culture. I personally, this is wonderful. This reflects, I think, who Christ is and, and the beauty of the gospel. Uh, but if the next cohort of leaders we're building don't reflect that, society will notice. Yeah. It, the, it's really interesting. In Matthew 16, there's a wonderful story of the Pharisees and Sadducees approaching Jesus. And so they, they, they walk up to Jesus. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, you all know, are the cultural and religious lead of their time, right? And, and so they go up to Jesus and say, Jesus, Jesus, give us a sign. Prove your divinity. And, uh, you know, so Jesus' response is very, very interesting. He says, so, hey, what's the weather like tomorrow? That was kind of his response. He was like, tell me about the weather. And uh, his point in there was that, that um, the, the Pharisees were actually really good at discerning sort of the cloud that basically you could tell by the color of the sky and the clouds, sort of what the, what, you know, was it a high, a high pressure front or low pressure? You could discern what the weather was like tomorrow just by looking up, which you were pretty good. And, uh, but he left them frustrated. Jesus left them very frustrated because despite their ability to see what was happening in the sky and, t and, and then discern what was likely to happen in the future, they couldn't see what was happening on the ground right in front of them. They couldn't understand that they were living at the very hinge of history. Christ himself, God himself, was incarnate on the earth, and as a result, everything was going to change. So at our moment, we are actually privileged in many ways, uh, much like the Pharisees and Sadducees, just because of, of sort of the historical moment in which we live. We have the tools 
and research and ability to see the probable departure of tens of millions of our friends and our family to walk away from a life with Christ. And so the question in front of us is what will our response be? Will our response be like the Pharisees and Sadducees and say, ah, you know what, it doesn't matter, I don't see it, it's all just going to work out in the end? Or will we respond as God would have us in our moment? Will we step forward into the opportunity that we have? Now say again, we call it the great opportunity, we could have called it the great bummer, right? We could have called this a lot of other things in this research report, but we are hopeful because Christ is at work. We serve a risen Savior. We serve a Savior whose tomb is empty, who, who in the midst of everything else is bringing his first and best intention to us. He is at work in his creation, not us. So we, in this moment, are not content with seeing 42 million young people walk away from a life with Christ. We believe God wants more of us. He, pray, he asks us, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers into the harvest fields. The fields are white for the harvest. And so we encourage you, ask you, beg you, plead with you, uh, come step into this great opportunity, step into this moment, ask what, how God would, would call you to respond. And very specific, you say, well, look, it's big, it's huge, I don't know what to do. Well, the good news is we wrote a long report. It's like <laughs> 40 ideas, literally 40 different ideas. Um, and, you know, we don't even, we, we claim no monopoly on them. I'm sure there are better ones out there. Um, so respond, think about it, pray, and in a minimum, ask God every day to send workers into the harvest fields. Thank you.